It was a crime that shocked an entire region and made headlines across the country. The discovery of the body of Hannah Buxbaum at the side of the 402 in July of 1984 was hard to believe for many, especially those who knew her. Why would anyone harm a mother of six, a faithful and supportive wife, and a pillar of the community? Little did anyone know at the time, the man who set the crime in motion was none other than Helmuth Buxbaum, the millionaire nursing homeowner. But as we heard in part one of this series, Helmuth had a dark side that involved cocaine, prostitutes, and eventually hiring men to kill his wife. In part two of Murder for Hire, the killing of Hannah Buxbaum, we take a closer look at who she was, as well as the aftermath of her murder, the impact it had not just on the Buxbaum family, but also on the families of those who investigated the murder. And we hear again from OPP investigator Mel Getty and Brendan Evans, who was part of the prosecution team at Helmuth Buxbaum's trial. Here's your host, Haley Chang. There is nothing amusing about murder-for-hire plots, but it would be understandable to look at how the murder of Hannah Boxbaum was planned and committed and determine that it was, to put it mildly, absurd. Sadly, that absurdity has overshadowed some of the more sad elements of this story. It's easy to remember and talk about Helmut's outrageous dual life and the infinite shortcomings of his crime, but at the center of it all, it's important to remember that Hannah Boxbaum, an innocent mother of six, lost her life and that she deserves to be more than a footnote in a criminal story that's garnered years of interest. This is Mel Getty, the lead investigating OPP officer in the Buxbaum case. Sad. It was a very sad homicide to do because um, when they got married back mm-hmm. in the early 60s, Hannah was uh, basically a cleaning lady yep. doing doing job. She worked putting him through university oh, my for goodness. three years. And he got he got his degrees and everything while she was making the money to put him through. Yeah. And uh, for him to ultimately do what he did, sad, really, really sad. Not only did Hannah work to put Helmet through university, but she also took care of their six children and helped build their nursing home empire. And as their business grew, so did Helmet's ego and the need to flaunt his wealth. Hannah's role grew from maintaining the business to reigning in potential public relation disasters. He came across as uh, having that I am better than you attitude. I am the man. I am better than you. Mm-hmm. And Hannah kept, kept restricting the, the, the purchasing of cars. He bought, he bought uh, I believe it was a Mercedes-Benz or a high-end car one time. She made him take it back. Wait, that won't look good. Our clients will see you driving an expensive car that, and that won't look good for business and that kind of stuff. So yeah. she was more a business person than him. We know that Hannah was made aware of some of his uh, indiscretions. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she and he and the, um, the pastor of the West Park Baptist Church um, and the elders had a meeting with Helmut and, and uh, he agreed to change his ways and he made a substantial donation. That was bad at the time. He never did change his ways and yeah. he kept going. So we have quite a history through the investigation of his indiscretions, his um, uh, company that he kept, the people he kept. Mm-hmm. And uh, all this, all this was when he was, like I said earlier, still 
having the public image of a loving, devoting father publicly. Uh, I, his family knew about his indiscretions. Uh, his one son was one that uh, fired Rob Barrett. Rob Barrett was hired by Helmut to do uh, yard work around the house. And he knew that uh, Rob Barrett, the brother or the son knew that Rob Barrett was a cocaine supplier to his dad. So he fired him. And uh, I mean, that didn't stop that relationship with Barrett and, and Buxbaum. But uh, so the family knew about it, but it was sort of buried. One of the saddest things about Hannah's death is that she never stopped trying to help Helmet. And for that, she was killed. She saw where it was headed, but she didn't leave his side. She refused to let Helmet's downward spiral affect her family, the business, and their livelihood. But Helmet ultimately didn't see it this way. She was threatening to take him to the elders again at the church elders. And they pretty much said the first time that if you continue, you'll be expelled from the church. Mm-hmm. And, if he's ex- and if he is expelled from the church and doesn't kill Hannah, his business is gone. Yeah. Because if you want to put your, mo- your grandmother or your mother in, into a nursing home, do you want to put it into a nursing home where there's allegations of the owner being a druggie, a sex scene, uh, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff? Or are you going to put her in a nursing home where the guy is a devout family man, religious, donates lots of money to, to the church for families in need? And if her actions didn't speak enough about her character, the people that knew her certainly did. Of the 2,000, over 2,000 people we interviewed, not one, not one comment of negativity was ever said about Hannah. A murder case like this one means a massive investigation. Police look at every lead, every scenario, and that means hours and hours of work for investigators. It's a grind for the officers and for their families. When you have three little kids, and and my wife was a school teacher, and she took time off to have the kids. Yeah. And my my youngest was, uh, he turned three that that summer. Yeah. And uh, she got a contract to go back teaching. Mm-hmm. at the end of June. Yeah. And I said, yeah, honey, yeah. If you want to go back full time, yeah, do it. That's, that's great. I'm around. I can help in the mornings, you know, and that, I, you know, she did. And then four days later, I get this homicide and I'm gone for three years. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know what? We're still together and yeah, life is got through it. And, and yeah, we got through it. And yeah. she understands. Totally. It can be very tough for investigators who are working these types of crimes. They can be away from their families for long periods of time. But Mel Getty explains why it's all worth it at the end. We had her picture up in, in our, the room that we had. I put her yeah. picture up on the wall. And uh, every day we looked at it. You know, when it was tough at home for being away so much and you do get home, I would say, I would say you know, honey, at least you're here. I can see you. I mean, you know, yeah. our kids still have a mom and dad. Like, yeah. it's, it's my job to nail the guy who did this. And that's what I'm doing. I'm sorry. There's yeah. no, okay, it's eight hours. I got to go home now, guys. It's just one of those things. And this was probably the first time in our, in my career that, and, and I was married, we were married, uh, we got married young at 19 and I joined the OPP at 20. Yeah. So this was the first time in our, first time in our marriage that, that this this had occurred this long yeah. away, and, yeah. and, and this preoccupied when you get home because you just don't turn this stuff off. 
you're not away investigating somebody's stolen car. Yeah. Or, you know, someone stole their uh, a pickup load of pigs or something yeah. like that. You're investigating a person lost their life for some reason. Yeah. That's that's the number one no-no in, in my books. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of number one no-nos, but that's the big number one. And yeah. uh, so she she got on with, she understood. And, and I remember saying to her one day, you know, honey, if, if I was killed or if someone murdered one of our kids, mm-hmm. would you not want the cop that's investigating to be as dedicated as I am in this one to yeah. make sure whoever did it pays the price for it? Or yeah. would you want a cop that was home after eight hours? And, you know, she said, you know, that, that's a no brainer. I didn't think of it that way. You're absolutely right. I yeah. said the cops are the only people that speak for the dead. Yeah. Nobody, nobody else speaks for the dead. The crown attorneys don't speak for the dead yeah. until there's a charge. I mean, social workers don't speak for the dead. They deal with the living. For those investigating the case, they and their families lost out on time together. But for the box bombs, the damages were forever. This became apparent at the trial as Helmet faced his charges alone. Here's Brendan Evans, assistant crown attorney at the trial. The older boys in his family the three of them in particular, Buxbaum's family, were in court every day. Um, That's my recollection. They may have missed a couple, but they were there pretty much every day. And uh, they'd be sitting on the defense side of the courtroom, usually in the first row behind the uh, defense counsel. And Helmuth would come in from the side of the courtroom, uh, from the cells, and be walked over to the prisoner's dock and placed in there. And it astounded me uh, that the boys, as we call them, um, very rarely acknowledged his entry into the prisoner's box. You know, they basically ignored him. Some were reading uh, the newspaper. Some had a pocketbook uh, with them. and they'd be reading as their fathers walked into the court, uh, which I thought was a little strange. But as the trial goes on and thinking back, maybe it wasn't so strange. They knew about, uh, obviously, his drug use and womanizing, um, weren't happy with that. Um, you know, so they had their own issues with him, you know, but it was um, just unusual. I've seen. In many trials, even uh, similar kinds of strife between the main players, um, husband and wife, for example, uh, a sexual abuse case. Okay, sadly, there's too many of those. But the spouse, usually the wife, um, is always seen as supportive of the accused if they show up at trial at all. You know, but it's, it's a show of support. That wasn't the case in Bachpantra. Of course, Hannah couldn't stand by his stuff, you know, although she tried, you know, and ultimately um, she was she was killed. Uh, well, he orchestrated her, her death um, because she was trying to save her family. She was a co-owner of the business. Um, and he was spending so much money on hookers and drugs 
that um, the financial advisors were saying, hey, you got to stop skimming from the, the business, okay, because you're getting into some difficulty. And she was trying to save him from himself, okay? And for that, he had her killed. That, to me, is evil. I don't think there's any sympathy in the public. No. What? Once the fact that the hookers and the cocaine and the drugs and, and all that started being circulated around, there was no love lost between the family and dad. Yeah. Um, and as business partners were, um, that nobody tried to protect them. Mm-hmm. Like nobody came forth or nobody spoke to his character. I mean, his kids were there all the time, but I think that was more for public perception by their part. Yeah. I don't think they. I don't think they cared one bit about their dad. That's my personal opinion. Buxbaum was represented at the trial by high-profile defense lawyer Eddie Greenspan, but it was expensive. Greenspan was paid $1 million to work on the case, a lot of money in the mid-80s. He also had the possibility of earning another $250,000 if Buxbaum was acquitted. He may have had his high-priced legal help, but the disintegration of Helmut's family circle became even more clear as the trial grew longer, reaching a crescendo when he was called to the witness stand. As I mentioned, um, Buxbaum was a much-anticipated witness. As you know, defense doesn't have to call the accused. Okay, And Greenspan went on great lengths to say he wants to tell his story. He wants to tell you what, ha- what really happened, you know, the, the lead-up to it. And there was a series of questions that uh, Greenspan asked um, Helmuth during the course of his examination in chief, such as um, when you left Kitchener uh, after you were married to Hannah and came and bought this farm, which was the land for the, the nursing home. And Greenspan would say, well, who was your best friend at that point in time? Of course, the answer is Hannah was my best friend. And there was a series of questions like that. When you started to, uh, uh, in rapid succession, I have to add, uh, when you started to amass this, um, this business and you're buying different properties and stuff and uh, business is picking up, but there's lots of headaches funding, all that kind of stuff. Who was your best friend? You'd say Hannah. Okay. And this continued on. There was about five questions that Greenspan put to Helmut. And each time, who was your best friend? Okay. Taking him through his life. Okay. And then it came um, just before the European trip. Was was my memory. It was that time frame. But it was around the time that uh, the evidence had shown that Hannah and the family were uh, standing up to Helmuth, trying to get him off drugs, trying to get him into a rehab, uh, get away from the hookers, et cetera, et cetera. It was that time frame. And uh, the question came, okay, now at that point in time, Helmuth, who is your best friend? know what the answer is supposed to be and Helmuth delays for a moment a pregnant pause I think they call it and said Reverend Paul Fawcett was my best friend at that point in time 
Now that speaks volumes, okay, uh, in the sequence of events. Of significance is that Hannah is no longer his best friend. That's the irresistible inference. And Reverend Paul Fawcett was um, his best friend at that point in time, Fawcett being very supportive of Helmuth, not fully aware of his other life. I had a lot of surprises in court, but I've never gasped before. And it was an audible gasp, and I was embarrassed as hell um, as crowns aren't supposed to do that. Lawyers aren't supposed to do that. But it just took my breath away. It was one of those <gasps> holy <clears throat> moments. Um, and that has always stuck with me. You know, and uh, in successive trials, uh, we sometimes, I would sometimes use the same technique, who is your best friend, that I never used it again. Okay, just because that had such an impact. Um, you know, so funny in a way, sad in another way. Um, but it just goes to show that anything can happen in a courtroom. All the jury members kind of smirked and giggled. Um, <laughs> I, I, I looked down at the floor because if I looked up, I would have been, I would have been smiling. So I just looked down at the floor. The kind of attorneys kind of kept a blank look on their face. Like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and, the, and the judge sitting up there, Gregory Evans, Justice Gregory Evans, great guy, nice guy. Yeah. He's sitting there, and he's looking down, not writing, just looking at his notebook. <laughs> oh, he can see the top of his head. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was, I mean, I, that didn't help him at any at all. What also helped was the in-depth testimony of his co-conspirators. Well, the most incriminating evidence, I think, uh, which really changed the whole trial was um, at the end of the preliminary hearing, or just as Buxbaum's preliminary hearing was ending, um, Rob Barrett, the organizer, Patrick Allen, um, who was there in the morning, okay, and was ready to do it, and then he passed the gun off to, to Fauché. And uh, another lady uh, by the name of Janet Hicks uh, were all charged with murder and conspiracy, along with Buxbaum and Fauché. And they worked out a deal uh, with the Crown, um, which allowed them to enter guilty pleas to conspiracy to commit murder, because clearly they were involved in them. Um, in exchange for having the, uh, the murder charge withdrawn against them, right, on condition that the, they would come and testify and tell the truth, okay, which is what they did. And you can imagine um, the devastating uh, evidence that these men could give about Helmut's repeated request to have her killed um, get rid of this pain in the ass that he, as he described it, um, and all the pieces fit together you know, because um, you know they were the the organizers, so they give all the background stuff, uh, which all hung together. So that was um, devastating evidence. The crown did a masterful job in reining these people in, you know these witnesses. 
druggies, prostitutes, most of which didn't have much affection for the police. Okay. And just trying to corral them to come and testify. They're very often they're fly by night um, individuals. So to be able to control that and bring them down to St. Catharines, put them up in a hotel, try and keep them away from drugs before they testify, and then parade them through quite successfully. You know, these types of people uh, from experience, not just this trial, um, but if they can work a deal of some kind, you know, then, then they're going to. But that didn't happen here. Now, there was some incidents after the trial, you know, but um, they came and they told their story. They were uh, extensively cross-examined by the defense and they hung tight. And it couldn't have been very often in cases like this. The defense argues it's a conspiracy. All these people got together and concocted a story for whatever reason. Um, and while it was true that many of the witnesses hung out in the same crowd, they knew each other, um, but their stories very often came uh, from different perspectives, if you will, and it all hung together. You know, too many people came forward with the same story or similar stories for this to be a coincidence or a concoction or a conspiracy. The evidence was irrefutable, a true and honest retelling of everything that transpired. But Helmut was naive about what that conviction meant. We drove him every day back and forth, as I said. And one morning we come to St. Catharines and the guy blew a red light right in front of me. I had the green, he blew a red light right in front of me. And I, I locked it up and spun around in the intersection and did whatever training they taught me to do. Yeah. And we avoided a collision anyways. Very, very close. And... Uh, when we got to, when the car stopped in the intersection, I looked back to see if our passenger was okay. And Helmut's sitting there looking at me and says, Mr. Getty, you do care about me. Oh. Thank you very much. You just, you just saved my life. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and says, you're most welcome. You know, <laughs> and it took him to court and you know, all that stuff. We never handcuffed him while we were transporting him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no need to. We pulled into a secure lockup put him in the car, doors, can't open the back doors, we got him locked. The day he was convicted, we went down to the courthouse, Sallyport, where he was being held. I asked the guard to open the door, and he opened the door, and I went in and said to him, turn around, put your hands behind your back, and I handcuffed him. He said, oh, why are you doing this, Mr. Goody? You, you never handcuffed me before. And I looked at him, I said, Mr. Boxbone, up to now you've been accused of killing your wife. Today." You're now a convicted killer. Mm-hmm. It's different. Mm-hmm. You are a convicted felon. And he looked at me and said, oh, and then put his head, put his head down. Uh-huh. I think maybe that was the first time it dawned on him that, yeah, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy now. On February 13th, 1986, Helmet was convicted and sentenced to a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. He spent the rest of his life in prison, advocating for senior prisoners' physical and mental health needs. He died on November 1, 2007, at the age of 68 in Kingston Penitentiary. As for any remorse for what he'd done, you can look no further than what he told Tom Blackwell from the National Post. 
For an older first-time offender, the charge, conviction, and sentencing is a devastating disaster, Buxbaum wrote. The total loss of self-respect, reputation, family, friends, life savings, and future retirement plans can only be comprehended by those who have gone through this traumatic first-time experience. Even after he had years to look back and reflect on what he had done, it's clear that there was no remorse at any point. Even at the start of his sentence, with the shock of life imprisonment fresh in his mind, he still couldn't summon an ounce of remorse. Shortly after he got into prison, he started sending letters out to women to oh. correspond with. And he uh, had a conjugal visit with a woman that he, and don't ask me how a prisoner gets a conjugal visit with someone who's not his wife or yeah. girlfriend before being incarcerated, but he got a conjugal visit uh, with a woman who, uh, um, I don't know, there's probably a name for it. I don't know what it is, but some women have sympathy towards prisoners and they yeah. want to befriend them. I don't understand that logic, but anyways. And then uh, he wanted to get married. He wanted to marry this woman while I was in prison. That, that never happened. But So I don't see that as any remorse whatsoever. We overuse the word shocking in our society, especially when it comes to criminal behavior. But even adjusting for that overuse, it's safe to call the Helmet Bucks bomb case one of the most shocking criminal acts in Ontario's history. This episode of the 519 Podcast was produced by Haley Chang, Craig Needles, and Patrick Magermans. Remember, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.